Shalom and welcome to our ICJ webinar today on current affairs here in Israel. Today our webinar will be about celebrating Israel at 75. And the reason for this is because uh, next um, week Israel will have their Independence Day. And they are celebrating 75 years of their independence. Um, we like to think about it as the rebirth of Israel as a state in our modern times after 2000 years, but this is a very significant number, 75 years, and very exciting things have happened since 1948 to today. Um, my co-host and speaker on this topic will be our ICJ Vice President of International Affairs, um, David Parsons. Welcome to the webinar. And um, before I turn it over to David, I do want to um, remind everyone that is watching and joining us today that we do have translation, especially if you are on our Zoom call. Uh, we have translation in French, Portuguese, Spanish, and in Thai today. So please join us. And if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook and you want translation, then just change over to our Zoom call. But yes, once again, it's very exciting times in Israel, celebrating 75 years. And we call this a miracle from God, prophecy being fulfilled. And we are very excited to hear what have happened during the 75 years with our ICJ Vice President David Parsons that has been with us over 25 years at the ICJ. You all know him. We hardly have to introduce him. So uh, thank you so much, David. It is great having you here. And if anybody is out there that want to celebrate with Israel, you need a flag or some item from Israel, just visit our store at ICJ store. We have plenty of flags if you want to order. Hopefully we'll come in one a week and you can wave your flag outside your house or inside your house and celebrate with um, Israel. But I will give it now over to our um, featured speaker, David Parsons. Welcome again. and. It's all yours. Thank you, David. It's good to be with everyone here on our ICEJ weekly webinar. We've had uh, quite a, a lot of events lately. We just went through Passover and uh, just uh, two days ago, um, uh, Yom HaShoah is uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, which is very solemn. Uh, they celebrate that just uh, a few days after Passover each year because it, it, uh, they, they tied it to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Uh, and uh, we just had the 80th anniversary of that where President Isaac Herzog, President of Israel, flew to Warsaw and commemorated the 80th anniversary of that with the presidents of uh, Poland and Germany. But uh, they tied it to the, the Warsaw Ghetto uprising happened over Passover. And, uh, but because it's a biblical holiday uh, instituted in the Law of Moses, they don't want to hold sort of a, you know, this sad commemoration of the victims of the Holocaust during Passover. So they do it a few days after. We just had that. And now next week, we're going to have first Yom HaZikaron. Holocaust Remembrance Day, um, excuse me, uh, the, the Remembrance Day Memorial Day for fallen soldiers and victims of terrorism here in Israel. And then as that day ends at sunset next uh, um, 
Tuesday uh, evening, uh, on Tuesday evening, they'll start Yom uh, Hatzma'ut, or Independence Day, Israel's uh, annual uh, birthday. And as my colleague David Vandervalk said, we, we like to see it uh, as, a, as a rebirth of an ancient nation in modern times. And uh, I have a PowerPoint program that I want to share and um, really um, think it'll help us as we uh, consider this holiday. Put this on full screen. Okay, here we go. All right, celebrating Israel at 75 years. 75 years is a good long uh, time. It's a lifetime to really consider, you know, the whole significance of the restoration of Israel. It's plenty of time to, to you know, ask the question, is this of God or not? And uh, it just seems that despite all the obstacles, all the opposition, all the wars, all the terrorism, all the rockets and everything, Israel just seems to um, uh, be growing and building. God is building up Zion and uh, despite everything that comes against it, nothing seems to stop it, and it's just on this upward trajectory. And I think after 75 years, we have to say this is this is a miracle, and it is the hand of God. And it is reason for Christians to celebrate. Uh, you know, uh, David Ben-Gurion here um, announcing the State of Israel May 14th, uh, 1948. Uh, and the reason it's falling on April 26th next week uh, is because they're going by the Hebrew calendar. A lot of people still uh, celebrate on the Western calendar as well. A lot of Christians, we join in both uh, on the Hebrew calendar next week, April 26th, and then May 14th, we'll have some other celebrations. So we get to observe this birthday twice a year, uh, but uh, it was quite a, a moment in, in the middle of Israel's rebirth, and there's reason for Christians to celebrate and, and for Israel to celebrate this year. Although we, we have to say and we have to acknowledge Israel hasn't been in such a celebratory mood of late because, first of all, it's uh, really torn internally with this very heated domestic debate over uh, judicial reforms, there have been mass protests, some of it a bit hyped in the media, but there is, it's just not the left and it's just not the center. There are many, many even on Israel's right who are saying the, the proposal for judicial reform by the new Israeli government, they go too far, we need to find a balance, we need to find a consensus. I think that's the the real key that uh, uh, the majority of people here want good common sense uh, consensus uh, and for the long-term, long-term stability and, and acceptance of the nation of some judicial reforms. But it's been a very heated debate with all sorts of protests and everything. And, and the protests are even, we'll probably see some of it showing up next week, even on Yom Azikaron, even uh, centrist leader Benny Gantz, former uh, chief of staff of the IDF. Um, there's debate here whether at the memorial events at a lot of the military cemeteries, whether politicians from the left or right should be showing up because of the 
heated political debate over judicial reforms. That issue has really come to the fore even more this year. It's always debated whether they should, politicians should be showing up at these memorial services, especially uh, a lot of the bereaved families who've lost soldiers, uh, lost uh, uh, others to terrorism. They don't want politics interfering, but Gann says we have to come and honor these people ourselves, whether you're in the government or opposition. I think one of the compromises is that someone from the government and someone from the opposition shows up at some of these main memorial services. But even that is getting touched by this uh, heated political debate. Uh, and of course, uh, we have uh, um, rocket attacks there last week. This is a, a rocket that hit in the town in northern Israel of, of Shlomi, where we've already put some bomb shelters, but it looks like they need more. It wasn't Hezbollah that fired these rockets from Lebanon last week, just uh, right at Passover. It was actually um, the uh, Hamas, which Hezbollah has allowed to get entrenched to recruit among the Palestinian uh, in the refugee camps in Tyre and Sidon, different parts of, of Lebanon, where there are still a lot of Palestinians living. And they it's normally been considered Fatah land, uh, the PLO, but Hamas has come in there with Hezbollah approval and recruited and armed uh, some uh, gangs, some militias with rockets that they can now fire at Israel. And Hezbollah says, we didn't do it. And they sort of get off scot-free. So you had rockets from Gaza, from Lebanon, and then from uh, Syria in three, four successive days where the enemies of Israel, the, United, the, the resistance front under Iran with Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, groups in Syria and Iraq, even in Yemen, that all want to surround Israel with rockets. And those rockets were fired from Lebanon the day after Ismail Haniyeh, the head of Hamas, met in Beirut with the leader of Hezbollah, Sheikh Hassan Nasrallah. It's very chilling. They, they met and it was agreed the Palestinians could fire some rockets at Israel. It was a barrage of 34 rockets, which I think they had made a calculation. If Israel wants to escalate from there, we're ready to escalate. And all the speeches at the, we're just coming also at the end of Ramadan, uh, all the speeches by Nasrallah, by Ismail Haniyeh, by President Reza in Iran, they're all uh, saying things are trending our way. They're not only got all these groups ringing Israel with all kinds of rockets and even drones now, but Iran has launched this diplomatic offensive where they, Israel was hoping to make peace with Saudi Arabia, where the Iranians beat them to uh, Riyadh and have, have shown up there, even the leader of Hamas, uh, Hanius, in this picture, uh, was uh, walking around the black box in Mecca, the heart of Islam, and going and meeting with Saudi officials over recent days. So it's uh, very, you know, you wonder, is there much to celebrate Israel? Is it really in a celebratory mood when your enemy is boasting and provoking and trying to launch a war right now and you're divided internally and you're seen as weak? And uh, But we still have to consider uh, and celebrate the 75th anniversary of Israel. It, uh, there's much reason to celebrate, and I think Really, it comes down to a miraculous birth 
that we can always celebrate it when happened because the the rebirth of Israel 75 years ago in May 1948 you can never separate it from the Holocaust and the murder of, of over six million Jews by the Nazis all through occupied Europe and even into North Africa. And the prophet Isaiah says this, it's like a rhetorical question, uh, Isaiah 66, 8, who has heard such a thing uh, um, and who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. This uh, question that, uh, you know, could Israel, which was scattered for so many centuries, could it come back as a nation in one day? And it's just uh, incredible to think that for the last three, four, 300, 400 years, ever since the Treaty of Westphalia, ended the um, the Hundred Years' War, religious uh, Catholics, Protestants fighting all over Europe. Uh, they came up with a treaty system afterwards, which uh, all these city-states and different nations and city-states that were fighting, they came up with a way where everyone could recognize each other and bring some stability to Europe, which has since sort of grown into international law and uh, what's known as the, the uh, um, Montevideo Convention, where if you are a people with a unique language, heritage, culture, you're in a certain land that you control that land, you control certain defined areas, and you have a viable government in control of that area, you can get recognized in one day uh, as as a nation. Rome wasn't built in a day, and it wasn't recognized in a day, but in modern times, even like India, India was born in the same year as Israel, even though it's an ancient nation and culture, it is now a member of the, the community of nations because it has a birthday uh, 75 years ago. In one day, they declared their independence, and nations around the world started recognizing them, and Israel went through that same process 75 years ago. Jews were returning to the land. David Ben-Gurion says we, we've matured enough in our political institutions and in our control of the land. We have certain defined areas, and we're going to uh, declare a state, the reborn state of Israel, so this question is answered in the affirmative that a nation can be born and recognized even in one day, May 14, 1948. But this also suggests, you know, for as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children, that the birthing of this estate, as with any other birthing process, you get birth pangs. And of course, this was the Holocaust and the, uh, what we uh, what we need to um, take into account is that Israel was in exile. The Jewish people were in exile, dispersed among the nations for two thousand years, and the miracle of the rebirth of Israel seventy-five years ago is that they had reached the lowest point of their exile. They had known all sorts of expulsions, persecution, uh, forced conversions, 
you know, all sorts of abuse and atrocities committed against them, especially in Christian Europe. Uh, and yet, uh, and they they had all, always longed to come back to the land of Israel, the promised land, and reconstitute their state, but they were never able to do it. And when they reached their lowest point, where two-thirds of the Jews of Europe, about half the Jews in the world, were wiped out, exterminated in this uh, German uh, sort of um, uh, wholesale industrial murder, of uh, gassing and incinerating Jews all through Europe, that uh, they reached their lowest point. And uh, as the Holocaust was started to get uncovered, the immensity of it in 1945 at the end of World War II, all of a sudden, just three years later, you have the nation of Israel being born being reconstituted. How did that happen? How did they reach their lowest point? And then suddenly just three in the, in the you know, when you look at the whole span of 2,000 years, those three years, that's, that's just a moment in time that suddenly the nation of Israel is reborn back in their ancient, their ancestral homeland. That's quite amazing. But the, um, the Bible speaks of this even, not, not just Isaiah speaking of the uh, rebirth of the nation, but it says it would actually be like a resurrection. And here we have the prophet Ezekiel. This is in the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, where the prophet is taken, I believe, down through time and taken out to a valley that's full of bones. They said there were, he says, there's many bones, and lo, they are very dry. And and uh, the Lord asks, what are these? Who is this? What is this? And the prophet says, "I, uh, you know, Lord. And then in Ezekiel 37, verses 11 through 13, then the Lord said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. You have four times in two verses of this prophetic passage, Ezekiel 37, where the Lord says this, this re restoration of Israel, this revival of Israel, this rebirth, national rebirth of Israel back in their homeland, it's even going to be like a resurrection, a resurrection power operating in the earth to bring the Jewish people, as it were, up from their graves. And I believe Ezekiel, he saw the massive, uh, the piles of bones from the mass executions uh, we think, you know, there's fighting. There was fighting around Kiev last year when the Russians were trying to get into Kiev, and there was a memorial uh, that was damaged there by some of the Russian artillery fire, uh, a memorial to the thir 33,000 Jewish victims of the Babanyar massacre, where the Nazis, when they had first gone into Ukraine, one of the first things they did is they rounded up all the Jews of the Kiev area, 
And in one weekend, in two days, they went and murdered in a big ravine, a big pit right outside of uh, Bob, uh, uh, right in what's today still the, the city limits of Kiev uh, in, in the Babinyar ravine, uh, 33,000 Jews in one weekend. That's, that's uh, horrible. It was the largest of the, the mass executions. There was one outside of Riga in, uh, in Latvia that was uh, around 25,000 in one weekend. Uh, and, and, and of course, when you tally it all up, it's over 6 million Jews who were murdered and, and many of them buried in mass graves. And Ezekiel sees this. And God tells him, prophesy to these bones that say they're dry and their hope is lost and were cut off, just as the Jewish people said after the Holocaust. How did they suddenly revive as a nation? It's a miracle of God. Israel and all her Christian friends need to stop. And whatever, no matter what the picture is now, we need to celebrate this as the resurrection power of God in operation in the earth in our day. God is still alive and intervenes in the affairs of men. Of course, we wish and pray that uh, it had, uh, that intervention had happened earlier and, and uh, some of the Holocaust had not happened. But, uh, you know, this is, uh, but it, it just looks like there was a certain way that God did this, that it won sympathy from the world for just a few years for the world to accept a Jewish state back among the community of nations. And uh, so it was a very uh, miraculous rebirth, but also a painful one, as any birth is. And uh, that was Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 36 also speaks of this last day's restoration of Israel. And I think uh, um, there's uh, something very powerful in this. First of all, uh, in Ezekiel 36, I think it's the clearest picture of how the last day's restoration of Israel how it would play out. All the prophets agree that Israel would be gathered back to the land in unbelief for the purpose of coming to belief back here in the land of Israel, that it's a physical ingathering to the land that's followed by a spiritual ingathering back to God. And as we read uh, Ezekiel 36, it's the clearest picture of this. Uh, you have the prophet Ezekiel uh, starting with verse 24 of chapter 36, where I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Notice that it's possessive. It's your land, Israel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will give you uh, a new heart and put in a new spirit within you. The next verse says, I'll put my spirit within you and you'll be my, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. It says, then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. Uh, I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine 
among the nations. This is Ezekiel, portions of Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 30. And what we have to consider here is that when, when God was correcting Israel for their unbelief by sending them out among the nations, uh, it says in the law of Moses, God says, if I have to uproot you from the land as a corrective measure because you've turned your back on me, uh, then uh, the sword is going to follow after you. There'll be diseases coming after you. You shall bear the reproach of famine out among the nations. You won't find a place to uh, uh, for your feet to rest. There was a certain curse that went with them, that um, this, this curse that they wouldn't have a place where they could settle down. Uh, it's quite interesting in both Christian and Muslim lands where the Jews uh, lived for most of the 2,000 years of exile. Most of the Jews lived in, under Christian or Muslim dominance. Both the Christians and Muslims refused them to allow them to own land. And so they lost the ability to farm for them and feed themselves. They had to rely on the goyim, the Gentiles, to feed them. And there were times when a lot of people were starving, but the Jews were starving. There was famine, disease, and such, and the Jews were the last ones to get fed. And this is the case even in the Holocaust. This curse that went with them into exile followed them right up into the time of the Holocaust, where you see this photo um, or uh, or this photo, these emaciated Jewish figures, these people survived the Holocaust, but you can see that they're just skin and bones and, uh, you know, such a tragedy. But the Bible speaks of it, that this would follow them. And even back in the land, uh, the land would not, would, would lay barren. It would vomit the Jewish people out. It would lay barren. It would not produce its fruit for another people. That is the testimony of history that even Mark Twain in his book, uh, Innocence Abroad, it was like a diary of his visit to the, the whole Middle East region, to Turkey, Egypt, and, and, and to, um, to the land of Israel and of Palestine at the time. Uh, he said, we traveled from Haifa to Jerusalem and there was we didn't see a single soul. We only saw a few jackals. And uh, he said, uh, Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes that you couldn't even grow a, a cucumber here. And uh, this, this is part of the miracle that we have to recognize, even though we see the horrors of the Holocaust and we see how even just, this is only 78, 80 years ago, brothers and sisters, Jews were still famished, and this curse that had followed them, you could even see it on their bodies where, where they were being starved to death. It was very uh, difficult the other night when I went to the official ceremonies at uh, Warsaw Ghetto Square over at Yad Vashem, where six Holocaust survivors were lighting candles in the memory of the six million Jews who died in the Holocaust. And nearly, and as they told each one's stories, they did little uh, video reports profiling each one, three, four minutes. But it, it was common in each of them that that everyone was hungry, 
um, and everyone was looking for bread. But if a Jew was out there looking for bread, it was considered a crime, and you were shot on the spot. Uh, the one uh, lady said that her father, they were on a train, and they had, had, they had hidden identities trying to escape to get the safety. Uh, but he, threw, he saw some starving Jews along the train track. Threw, uh, uh, the father threw a piece of bread out the window of the train, uh, to these starving Jews, and, and they, um, they stopped the train, the Germans did, and waited five hours trying to find out who threw that piece of bread off to starving Jews. I mean, that, that is just diabolical that you have that sort of mentality. And people, all, all of Europe was hungry in the middle of the war. Uh, the, the war was so devastating but you could still go look for bread. But if you were a Jew, it was, you could be executed on the spot because you ate a piece of bread. That, that is that, that, that curse that, uh, uh, you know, sad to say, this is what followed them. And the miracle of the rebirth of Israel is just that three years after this, after you still see the reproach of famine, upon the Jewish people. You come to Israel now and look at the produce of the land. This is over at the Shuk, the, the Mahane Yehuda here in Jerusalem. Uh, these watermelons that you see here, they down in the Negev desert, it's desert land, but they found it's brackish, it's salty water under the, under the desert. They drill down, get the water, the watermelons grow there. They put this salty water on them, and they turn out sweeter than most normal melons. You can see all kinds of fruit uh, and and um, uh, vegetables and everything here. That a land that was it, it, the the land was cursed itself and would not produce for another. But the Lord says, "I will call for the grain and multiply it." bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. This is the miracle that the land of Israel itself has come back to life for the Jewish people who have returned to it. And even while they were in exile, they lost the ability to farm They've learned it and recaptured it in a way that is blessing all the world now. This is a um, some strawberries grown here in Israel, and it may not be so easy to see on here, but these things grow so fast that the middle of them are hollow, that it's grown so fast it's actually growing apart from each other. If you've ever had some of these Israeli strawberries, there's always like a a hole in the middle, and it's because they're growing so ripe and so fast that uh, and so large that they kind of grow apart in the middle. And this is because of drip irrigation. When we consider, you know, the transformation, the resurrection, the revival of Israel, restoration of Israel, it's a restoration of the land as well and what the people of Israel are producing from the land of Israel. And they came back, they weren't, they didn't know how to farm and feed themselves. They came back to a land that was desert. And they are today 
uh, uh, one of the, uh, uh, they're the only nation in the whole Middle East, in this whole region, that is able to export food to, to feed their own people and export food to other nations. That every other nation around it, Egypt especially, is in a bad position. They've had a population explosion, over 80, 90 million Egyptians now. Of course, they got the Nile water, but no real arable land out around it. And they're not able to feed themselves. They have to uh, import around 80, 90% of their grain to feed their own people. You go to any of the nations, the Arab nations here in the Middle East, they all have to import food to feed their people. Of course, Israel imports food, but it's to enjoy nice Italian cheeses and and you know the the nice things from different countries, but they have a positive export ledger when it comes to crops, fruits, vegetables, and one of the ways they've done it through innovation is drip irrigation. There was a guy, an Israeli, who he saw two trees near each other, and one of them it was just growing so much bigger and faster than the other one. And he noticed there was a pipe leaking right at the foot of the one, just dripping a little water on it, and it was growing 10 times faster than the other tree beside it. And so he started a company called Netafim, and they became the world's leader in drip irrigation. They now uh, um, uh, sell their irrigation project products, their drip irrigation products, in about 120 nations. They have around 20 factories around the world. It's just quite, quite amazing what this innovation, you know, it's simple but ingenious. And this alone has allowed Israel to create huge greenhouses and get uh, two, three, four crops a, a year to grow strawberries even in, in the winter and ship them to Europe around Christmas time. And these strawberries grow so fast because of the drip irrigation that they, they're hollow inside uh, like this. So this is one of the innovations. Israel has become a leader in water conservation, uh, saving water, recycling water. Israel recycle. Uh, the household, the, the water that goes through uh, households here is taken and, and collected and recycled uh, on through for agricultural purposes. And Israel does this with around 85 to 90 percent of its water. The next closest nation is Spain at about 25 percent. And the whole world needs water, and they're coming to Israel to learn how to conserve water, to recycle the drip irrigation, of course, desalination. It's quite, uh, it's been quite remarkable and transformed different areas of the world, especially even here in the Middle East. A lot of these Arab countries don't know it. They, they have desalination plants now to meet the needs of uh, their growing populations in desert lands. Uh, and it was Israel that really pioneered and perfected the desalination process. Israel itself now has, I think, six desalination plants along the coast, and that's allowed them to uh, save and spare the Sea of Galilee, which was falling down. With uh, A lot of water was being used from that 
throughout the, the country, not only in, in for household needs, but even agriculture. And they've been able to, to now replace that with desalinated water from the Mediterranean. And what we have here, this unit that this gentleman has had, it's water gin. This is one of the latest innovations that Israel is uh, has made a generator that can turn uh, air, thin air, the humidity in the air, it can extract the humidity and purify the water that comes out of it so that you can drink it just as this guy is filling um, a bottle of, of water. It's fresh drinking water that uh, they've even got little mobile desalination plants that you can take. These are mobile units. You can put either this water gen unit that makes water out of air or de small desalination units that you can take to a river or anywhere, to a, a lake or a pond, you're not sure how clean it is, and you can actually put it, say, in the ocean, and, and within a minute, you can have fresh drinking water that you can turn up as, as good as any, any uh, bottled water we have today. And this is, uh, you know, the miracle of, of Israel, what's happening here. And uh, when we look at the, the innovation in different fruits and crops, this is the long shelf cherry tomato. Israel didn't necessarily invent the cherry tomato, but they uh, made certain advances in its quality and its properties that these uh, cherry tomatoes uh, can be shipped long distances. They're going to stay right. They get ripe and they stay ripe and don't rot for weeks and weeks and weeks. They're good and hearty and healthy. Uh, and uh, they, they're not going to turn and they're not going to spoil on you. So it's a long lasting ripened cherry tomato vine ripe actually started, uh, I think they really perfected this process in some of the Jewish greenhouses down in the Gaza Strip in Gush Katif block of settlements years ago. And I just saw a report where Israel even has, uh, has a new uh, tomato, a cherry tomato that is drought proof, that it's going to uh, grow even if, there's, uh, not, even if there's a drought in the area. Uh, I think of some of the other innovations. The Jaffa oranges are popular around the world. It says, um, it says in Isaiah 27, uh, when God uh, brings the Jewish people back and starts giving life to the land again, that the land of Israel shall blossom and, and bud and fill the face of the earth with fruit. Jaffa oranges are the most popular oranges in Europe, uh, have been that way for decades. Uh, there's also these medjool dates, from the, especially from the Jordan Valley. It's a very sweet, high-quality date from the land of Israel that somehow they make it out of the country and then back into Arab countries. They don't know. If they knew it, some of them might boycott it, but the best dates in the world are from here in the land of Israel. And this is a land that you couldn't even grow a cucumber in a hundred years or so ago. It was very difficult, and Israel has turned it into a Garden of Eden. Even that, we, we just quoted Isaiah 27, 6, that Israel would fill the face of the earth with fruit. Uh, Isaiah um, 36, verse 35, we were speaking from Isaiah 36 earlier, says, this land that was desert, 
has become like the Garden of Eden. It says in Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. So we see that the land itself has come back to life to bless, uh, to, to feed the Jewish people, uh, and through their innovation and through the, the you know, large yields they're getting and the quality of it, they're shipping it everywhere. There's also a verse, Zechariah 8, verse 11, and it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Israel, a blessing in the midst of the earth. And we can look at a few other ways that Israel has been a blessing to the whole world. It's restored, miraculously reborn nation of Israel coming from the, uh, you know, hitting rock bottom with the Holocaust and just in a few decades uh, having one of the healthiest food supplies in the world, the only nation in this whole desert region that can feed its own people and export to other nations and a very innovative nation, the startup nation. I don't know how many know this, but the Intel company, which was, is one of the world's leading manufacturers of microchips for computers uh, in Silicon Valley out in California, they had a problem in the 70s and 80s as computers were developing. They, they started out, they were huge mainframe computers. They took up whole rooms and they wanted to make them smaller and smaller, which would make them practical for so many more uses. But as they made the microchips and the, and the, the boards of uh, the different circuits, the circuit boards, as they made them smaller and smaller, they would heat up too much. They would get too hot. And the silicon, the little lines of silicon that conduct the electricity and all, they would, uh, they would melt and it would ruin the, the microchips. And it was Israeli developers who came up with uh, the whole series, the 286, but it was the 386 microchip from Intel that really gave us the computer revolution that we enjoy today, that uh, through it, they developed the Intel 386 microprocessor, which was the first one in say the IBM uh, um, personal computers where you had a computer box and a screen and it's gotten smaller so that you now have a laptop and even smaller you have tablets and uh, and 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 even smaller you have our phones and even smaller than that you now have um, Apple watches that are like computers you have tiny micro computers and all sorts of uh, doing all sorts of uh, um, functions around the world because the microchips that are at the heart of these computer systems uh, are, can be now smaller and smaller and smaller. It was Israel that overcame, Israeli researchers who overcame that melting point and brought us the whole digital revolution that we have today. I don't think many people know that. People who want to 
boycott Israel. Well, you got to throw away your your cell phone. You got to throw away your laptop, your home computer, whatever, because there is Israel. You know, we usually say Intel inside. Well, is, uh, Intel has their main R&D centers. There's around 200 global companies that have their main research and development centers here in Israel. And, and if you really want to boycott Israel, you're going to have to throw away most of your digital items. <clears throat> Here's another one that uh, a lot of people may not know about, but uh, this is the SanDisk. Um, it's a, uh, what we call a data stick or a memory stick. We call them a, um, a thumb drive. Uh, or a memory drive. It's the little uh, USB uh, ports that you put in the side of your laptop or your computer that carries a lot of information, a lot of data. You can uh, transfer a big, you know, something that's too big to email to someone. You just put it on that disk. You take it from your computer, put it in someone else, and you can transfer it. That this whole technology, this handy little device, was a, a memory storage device, was developed here in Israel, bought by SanDisk, at SanDisk, and now is sold all around the world. And it was Israel that was the most innovative. I think there was a competition on uh, for this, but it was Israel that beat everyone to the punch with the uh, SanDisk uh, storage memory devices that can fit right in your pocket, a little data key or memory key, we talk, you know, we call them. This is the Checkpoint Company. It's a software company in Israel that developed what was called Firewall One. And this was really uh, pioneering cybersecurity as we know it today. It was a way to, as you had, you know, your own computers, or your company had computers and you were connecting on the internet, it was a way to prevent it from uh, getting viruses, getting hacked. Uh, the Firewall One protection system was developed here in Israel. Israel, ever since, has been one of the world's leaders in cybersecurity. There's a war on now, uh, this uh, shadow war between Israel and Iran. Iran is getting help from Russian hackers and and Russian uh, cybersecurity experts, uh, and and Israel has basically been beating them, but it's there's a race on, and they have to really try to stay ahead of it. And uh, a lot of it is uh, guys coming out of the IDF, out of the Israeli military, Israeli intelligence, different things they were using to protect uh, Israel's uh, computer systems and such from cyber attacks that were then developed into commercial uses so that everyone can have uh, affordable protection uh, security for, for all our digital devices. So Israel is one of the leaders in that. Of course, this is Waze. Uh, it's a, a, a navigating system as you're driving, traveling. And there were other systems being developed, but Waze, an Israeli invented prod product, was the first one to give real-time traffic reports. You don't have to listen to uh, the radio anymore and some helicopter flying over the city and saying it's it's uh, blocked over on such Main Street uh, back through uh, Rodeo Drive or whatever. You, 
You can look on your own phone. You're heading somewhere. It'll tell you which way to go, which way will get there, you there the fastest because there's enough people using ways that it is reporting all to one central place. And if there's a, if a lot of the Waze users are stuck in traffic, it's going to show up in the Waze program wherever you are and help you avoid traffic jams. And this has become, it was bought up by Google for over a billion dollars a few years ago. And I think Google has basically used it to create, uh, you know, traffic uh, uh, aids, tra driving assistance on their own Google Maps uh, um, based on some of the ways concepts. But this is another way that Israel is leading the world and blessing the world today. There's medical advances. Uh, one, one of them is this pill cam. Uh, it actually was uh, some guys who had been in the Israeli Air Force and had been using microscopic cameras for certain uses, smaller and smaller high-definition def, uh, cameras. Uh, and, and when they came out of the military, they went and developed one for medical purposes that this is really a small little uh, pill camera that you swallow and a doctor is able to uh, follow the pill as it goes down through your whole digestive system, your, your th down your throat and into your stomach and all the way through your intestines uh, to try to detect um, uh, different diseases, disorders, uh, problems in your digestive tract so that you don't have to have invasive surgery just to find out what's wrong with you. And it's been a big benefit for many people, the pill cam. There's also uh, um, a, an app for phones, a special medical app that uh, uh, can detect cancer through smell. Can you believe it? Your, your cell phone can have uh, an app on it that can it can read uh, through certain vapors, certain, certain smells, and the program can analyze what it and actually detect whether you have certain types of cancer or not. I find that quite amazing. Another uh, recent medical advance here in Israel is called Rewalk. This is an ex external um, skeleton that you put on someone who's a paraplegic and has had a prosthetic arm or leg and someone who may have lost both legs, you can fit them with, uh, with the, the, these uh, mechanical legs and hook them up in certain ways that people can walk again through an exoskeleton. It's quite uh, uh, a dramatic advance in, in uh, medicine. And uh, here is Mobile Eye. This is another, uh, it's probably Israel's best uh, um, self, uh, it's, it's the best technology they have to put in self-driving cars. Uh, this is the future. It's kind of scary for me still. I don't know if I trust, you know, a computer driving at 60, 70 miles an hour. I sort of trust myself more, but uh, there are many, many people who say are swearing by it, and it's already available in many, many, many devices, in many cars, 
that even backing up, uh, it's not only warning you of stuff behind you and all your cameras, all the, the safety systems that they have in cars, but the, the computers with the camera sensor and sensors around the cars can now actually drive and steer the car. And we've seen it. Uh, I've been in quite a few cars that if you're trying to parallel park, uh, all you got to do is push the buttons and it will move you forward, move you back and do a perfect parallel park, not in four or five or six attempts, but in one attempt, it will get you in a, a tight spot. Uh, and they're quite remarkable. And, and you know, I think uh, especially when driving inside of cities, more and more people are accepting this. They're on all uh, most of the new cars coming out, but Mobileye currently uh, is the R&D center for such companies as uh, Volvo and BMW and GM. Uh, some of the big, biggest uh, car companies in the world have turned to this Israeli company, Mobileye, to help them uh, usher us into this era of self-driving cars. It is getting into, you know, really futuristic stuff here, but Israel's on the cutting edge of it and really uh, trying to provide the safest system out there available. Uh, you know, Volvo uh, especially has always been uh, uh, put a lot of a premium on, on safety in their cars, and they're relying on Israel to get them uh, to that next level and, and BMW and others. So Israel's a real leader in that. And the last that we'll mention here is Iron Dome, uh, which is, uh, you know, they say that uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And the problem is that Israel has needed to come up with all sorts of technological advances in order to have a qualitative edge in its weaponry and its defense systems against a whole array of, of enemies, because the enemy normally has a, a quantitative edge. They have more weapons, more soldiers, more whatever. Israel has to, has a, has to have a qualitative edge, and they do that through high tech. And Israel has developed the Iron Dome, which is the world's most efficient, effective, accurate anti-missile shield to date. I know the U.S. Uh, deployed the, the Patriot batteries uh, decades, several decades ago already. We thought, wow, a missile's going to shoot down a missile. But the truth is they only uh, had about a 25% accuracy rate or effectiveness rate in shooting down Scud long-range Scud missiles. The Iron Dome is one of three tiers of Israel's missile defense. They have the Arrow 3, which is the, the third generation of their Arrow system, which is sort of a sister to the Patriot. But the Arrow is for long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles. Uh, David Sling is uh, an intermediate uh, missile defense system that is just being deployed. And then the Iron Dome is for shorter range between, say, seven kilometers, five miles, and around uh, 50 to 70 miles. And that sort of range, all these uh, Katusha rockets and, and other shorter range rockets, missiles, if it gets up there high enough, then the green pine radar that helps run the uh, Iron Dome can detect it. And they have a, about a 90 
I think it's around a 95% effective rate now in shooting down enemy missiles. Uh, and it doesn't try and shoot down all of them. It calculates those that might hit in what they consider open areas, fields and such. If they're headed for an, uh, uh, an urban area or for roads or an airport or some sort of installation, and it sends up a rocket to, to destroy that incoming uh, rocket, then this interceptor is hitting 95% of the time it's taking out that target. And it is the most proven and effective uh, short-range uh, anti-missile defense system in the world now. It's in high demand around the world. They're begging for it in Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian army wants it to protect their troops and their tanks and their own artillery and everything else. But the problem is that there's only so many batteries of these and so many missiles, it's quite expensive, uh, that Israel can't spare any because they now have to cover not only Gaza, but Lebanon. Both the northern and southern fronts are active and they need uh, these defense systems here because Israel is ringed with so many rockets. But the whole war wants this. It was jointly developed with the U.S. It was really Israel that made it with joint U.S. funding, um, but it is expensive. An interceptor rocket costs around $50,000 now, and so they're trying to develop the next uh, tool in the missile defense system, and that's the iron beam. This would be an electric pulse laser beam uh, weapon that would shoot down rockets, mortars, drones, even the new drone threat. The Iranians have really made advances in their drone systems. And Israel is working. It would still take a couple of years to finish developing it and deploying it, but they are developing the what they call the Iron Beam, a laser defense system to shut shot, shoot down planes, rockets, longer range missiles, drones, anything coming at it. It can shoot down planes itself. And this is the next generation. And uh it it's uh uh, you know, a lot of his Israelis are anxious to see this get deployed and help defend the nation. Uh, but it also means that all these rockets around it, the enemy may calculate before that iron beam gets out there, maybe they, they better use the rockets or they're going to lose them, that they won't be as effective if they wait till this iron beam is there. So we need to be praying for Israel and concerned for Israel uh, and, and hoping they get this system deployed uh, as quickly as possible. So we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, and I think when you look at all this and consider it and where Israel came from over the last 75 years, right after the uncovering of the horrible immensity of the Holocaust, you have the Jews finally uh, the rebirth of their nation back here in the land. And ever since this, Israel has become such a blessing in the midst of the earth, doing so many things to benefit uh, the world, and they brought the land back to life. It is the hand of God. It is something to celebrate, and we say congratulations, Israel. Happy birthday on Yom Hatzma'ut next week, next Tuesday evening and Wednesday. Please celebrate it with us, Israel's 75th anniversary. Uh, I'll stop sharing now. And uh, we went just about an hour there. So that was good timing, David.
I don't know if there were some questions that came in, but I hope people got a lot out of this. And I thank the translators too, because I was going fast and they we had them working. So all the best yeah. to them. Yes, thank you so much, um, David. This was a wonderful overview in what is happening in Israel and where Israel is today after 75 years. It's just really amazing and a miracle. We can also just tell our audience, you know, there are today 9.6 million people living in Israel, about 7.1 million are Jewish, um, 2 million are Arabs, and 513,000 is from other minorities. Um, I believe more than half of the Jewish population around the world now are living already in Israel. And uh, we really need to uh, remember, as David said, Israel started basically with nothing, a country that was a desert, desolated place. Many didn't give it much hope. But after 75 years, it is thriving. Um, they are innovative. Um, they have more companies on the NASDAQ exchange than any other um, country other than China and the U.S., um, all this um, innovation they are doing it is because they have the highest percentage of scientists and engineers in the world at 135 per 10,000 capita. So it is just amazing how the Jewish people have done with, with what God has given them. And we know this is prophecy being fulfilled. And so much, David, for this update as we're celebrating 75 years. And just to close with a light um, note, 90% of Israelis eat hummus at least once a week. If you come to Israel, make sure you get a taste of it. And even better, apparently you can get hummus-flavored ice cream in Israel. Well, this is Israel at 75 years. Thank you so much, David. And please all join us next week at our ICJ webinar Thursday, 4 p.m. Israel time. And uh, please celebrate next week with us this wonderful miracle and restoration of Israel. We thank you all, bless you, and shalom from Israel. David, uh, we, uh, we need to just let the people know that uh, coming up in May, our U.S. branch in the United States, they have two big gala dinners to celebrate Israel's birthday. One is on May 7th in Nashville, Tennessee, and the other one is May 17th in Washington, D.C., uh, our USA director, Susan Michael, has a whole lineup of speakers at both events. There'll be different speakers at, at each event, uh, uh, different uh, singers. Vesna Bueller will be there. Jurgen Bueller, our president, will be there. Uh, he's got, she's got Jason Greenblatt, who was one of the architects of the Abraham Accords, uh, Dusami Washington, uh, I think that's uh, Naftali, uh, Hanania Naftali. He does social media for the prime minister and uh, a lot of other people. There's Aaron Schuster and, and others that will be part of these gala celebrations of Israel's uh, Diamond Jubilee, their Diamond Anniversary 75th. Uh, so if you want to find out more, go to icejusa.org. And uh, shalom to everyone. Happy birthday, Israel.